Welcome to Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton, Certified Fraud Examiner, Private Investigator, and Pink Collar Crime Expert. This is the podcast where thought leaders in fraud share their stories, wisdom, resources, and tips. For 25 years, I have worked in fraud and investigations in both the government and private sector. I love what I do, and I want to share with others who are also either working in fraud or interested in fraud as a career. This is where you will learn how to investigate but not commit fraud. Welcome to episode two of Great Women in Fraud. Today we have Sophia Carlton. She is a manager at Grant Thornton and she is the primary lead author on the anti-fraud playbook that was put out by Grant Thornton and the ACFE. What you're going to get in this episode is Sophia's just energy for the field, but also how important community is in fraud and especially with great women in fraud. So take a listen. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And of course, be sure to download the anti-fraud playbook because it is an incredible resource that Grant Thornton generously shared with the ACFE. So we are so lucky to have Sophia Carlton here from Grant Thornton. So Sophia, why don't you start off telling us your role in the field of fraud at Grant Thornton? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kelly. And I'm really excited to be here uh, today. Uh, So at Grant Thornton, I am a manager in our fraud risk mitigation and analytics practice. Um, As part of that, uh, we've helped or we've really built the practice from the ground up over the last year. So it's been really exciting as we start to build out those types of uh, methodologies and solutions for clients. And as part of that, we focus a lot, at least our team focuses a lot on the proactive side of fraud. So less on the forensics and disputes, which we do have a lot of colleagues who focus there. Um, But the team that I work on focuses more on fraud risk assessment, maturity assessment, really building the foundation for a strong fraud risk management program. And we work across the public and private sectors and within the private sector across a number of industries as well. Yeah. The first thing I think of is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, yes. <laughs> um, and when we were talking before, um, I love that you're proactive because, again, like it's so much better to do it on the front end versus the back end. And um, I will say that the I was reviewing the anti fraud playbook. I did it when it first came out, but I was reviewing it last night. And this the best defense is a good offense. I mean, that yeah. says it right there. And you were the lead author on that, weren't you? Yeah, I was lead author in the Antifraud Playbook, and it was really exciting because we got to uh, publish it in conjunction with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners and release it at the Global Fraud Conference back in June. Um, So we're really excited about it as a resource for the fraud fighting community and for really any organization who's looking to start a strong progress management program or advance what they already have in place. Yeah, and part of it I like is the idea of community and messaging. Because no one thinks fraud is going to happen to them until it does. And um, I think it's incredibly generous that you guys have put this together with the ACFE. I mean, I can go to clients and I can show them this anti-fraud playbook and they're going to think I'm a genius and I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And you guys have put so many resources into it and it is all encompassing. I just... I I think it's incredibly generous of you. So one of the things we're talking a lot about these days, not just on this, but is how is COVID impacting you and your personally and in your business? 
Yeah. Well, you know, pre-COVID, I, I might be in a unique situation because pre-COVID, I was working from home anyway. So I already had, I was kind of used to doing that. I already had like my desk and my chair, which I know were just selling out everywhere um, on Amazon and other sites. So I was lucky in that way. Um, but, you know, I think just like everyone making adjustments to still connect both uh, professionally and personally with, you know, my colleagues, family and friends. Um, so I think like most people, I've gotten pretty pro at the virtual happy hour or virtual Sunday family dinner. Um, so I think, you know, considering we've made, we've worked to make something great out of a not so great situation. So it hasn't necessarily been all that bad so far, uh, within my own family. And, um, you know, the ACFE has surveyed professionals and they've said that fraud is going to increase due to COVID. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that fraudsters uh, don't let a crisis go to waste, right? And especially in times of economic hardship, we definitely see a rise in fraud. And so I think across industries, and we see a lot even targeting individuals, right? So phishing attempts, those fake texts and emails. I just got a text this morning um, from a supposed bad guy asking me to input my updated financial information for a package I never ordered. (laughs) You know, and I know I'm not the only one getting those types of uh, texts and emails. So I think absolutely, I think we've already seen that increase. Um, and I don't expect it to end anytime soon. Yeah, my husband got a text last night, and it was like a personal text, and it was just a phone number. But then I see underneath it, the phishing one from the alleged USPS. And I'm like, Oh, my God, delete that because my husband's a little bit of a techno dinosaur. And I was like, you got to delete that. But then we figured out it was a cousin from the East Coast. So it was fine. But yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, my husband is far more trusting than I am. So what is your personal motto? My personal motto? I think I have a few. Um, One that I try and remind myself all the time is strive for progress, not perfection. And I think it applies personally and professionally. So, you know, I think we're always learning and growing as people and it's okay to make mistakes and to just be authentically who you are. Um, and even if you're a work in progress. So I really think that the strive for progress, not perfection resonates with me from that way, but also professionally, right? So even when talking to clients who are looking to build a fraud risk management program, a lot of times you can get analysis paralysis. And you know the key there is it's okay, just get started, right? And then you can change and iterate and grow and perfection isn't always what you're going to get right off the bat. And that's all right. Um, so I think it applies both ways. So I feel like I say it all the time. Um, but that's probably my my main personal motto. That's so funny. I was listening to a podcast last week and I heard the, the term clarity through motion. And it was like, that's kind Ooh. of along those same lines. I will have to say when, so we follow each other on Twitter and obviously we're connected on LinkedIn. You are like, you are an up and comer. You're young. I love this, that you are taking, you're taking charge. And I, cause I'm farther along in my career. I won't say I'm old, but I'm farther along in my career. And so I went back through your LinkedIn profile and I was just, I'm so impressed that like you are taking lead author in the anti-fraud playbook. I think it's great to see, I'm going to call them the up and comers in the fraud world. So congratulations to you for doing that. Cause when I was your age, I still didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so. <laughs> So well, thank you. I, I mean, I have such a passion for this work. And I think I'm, you know, I'm probably lucky to have figured it out relatively early in my career. Um, but thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's just it's absolutely heartfelt. Um, so uh, 
if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, which is really not that far ago compared to me, <laughs> what would you tell yourself? I think if I was going to talk to my 18-year-old self, it'd probably be that, you know, don't worry, you'll figure it out, right? It's, it's simple, but I think when I was 18, I was just going into college. And actually, when I started my career in college at JMU, um, I didn't have a major. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't very sure what to pick or why to pick it. Um, and I spent my first year in college really just taking a bunch of classes to help me figure it out. And everything that I took landed on accounting. I was like, oh, accounting? What? I'm not an accountant. <laughs> and then I took the class and I loved it. And I kind of really reworked my vision of what accounting meant. Because I think there's this perception of an accountant and what that means. And... I think it's great to break that mold and see, you know, a bunch of different faces and more diversity in that field, um, both at the education level and at the professional level. So I think that would be my advice is don't worry, you'll figure it out and you'll end up where you're supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my dad made me his, the thing for college. He made me take one accounting class and apparently like the first accounting class has a huge fail rate. And I was like, I made it through. I probably should have been an accountant. I joke. I should have been an accountant or an auditor, but you know, things work out. So they just, yeah. Yeah. My 18 year old self. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, and this kind of goes to the next question is what is one thing that you would have wish you had known when you started your career? I think one thing I wish I'd known when I started my career is that it's powerful to be authentic. Um, when I first started my career, I had actually just come out as bisexual in my personal life. And I hadn't yet figured out how to do that professionally. And I was seeing my now fiance, then girlfriend. And it was just a very difficult time when I was first starting because I wasn't sure how to live those two separate lives and then how to break down the barrier. And once I did, I got more support and more connected to people than I ever thought I would. And I think it's all because I was just being who I am. Um, there's nothing special. I don't think there's a secret ingredient, right? It's just being authentic and whatever that looks like. And by doing that, I've been able to increase visibility for the LGBTQ plus community at Grand Thornton and otherwise, you know, across the industry. So I think that is one thing I wish I had done when I started. So I didn't have to worry so much. And I just kind of started that way. <laughs> but I think I learned a lot of good lessons. And of course, it all worked out. But I think that would have been one thing that if I was where I was back then, I wish someone had told me. Yeah. You know, so many people talk about authenticity, and but they don't live it. And, you know, I mean, especially with social media, you're just like, I mean, I'll go on social media and I can, I joke, I can burn down anyone's house instantly. And it's like, and you, you can't talk about it and not do it. And I knew your background from this. And so I, I think it's amazing. I would have been like, I think, you know, granted times have changed and it's a little bit, I'm not going to say easier now, but it would have been really, I think, difficult. And then plus for you to have a firm that supports you in that, I think is incredible. So bravo. I mean, it makes a world of difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having the support of Grant Thornton has made me a lot more comfortable. And I think it's allowed me to even be more comfortable outside of Grant Thornton. So like on my social media, like making sure that that's out there and present so that when people not even knowing me could see kind of who I am and what I'm standing for. And, you know, it opens up to some criticism or a different views, but I'm proud that 
I'm there and visible so that other people can see that and appreciate who they are so they can enter their own lives more authentically. So, okay. So I just had Cynthia Hetherington on and she says she was bridezilla and they have to push their wedding out like a year because of COVID. Have you had to readjust your wedding plans? Are you like, did you push them out at all because of COVID? Yeah, well, funny enough, we actually, me and my fiance, Caitlin, just got engaged in May. So we had a pandemic proposal. (laughs) So we actually kind of are navigating the world of COVID and wedding planning. And we'll see how it goes. Right now, we pushed it to uh, 2022. So hopefully, at that time, we'll be able to get more people together and have a more kind of traditional looking wedding. (laughs) Versus now, we've been to some weddings where it's like four people. Um, so that's the goal, but you know, we'll see how it goes and we'll stay flexible, but it's been an interesting time for sure. Well, so Cynthia's wedding is going to be next summer. So you can, and she loves to plan things. So you guys should hook up for that because she is. Yeah, definitely. Cause I'm a planner, (laughs) but I've never planned a wedding. So (laughs) I'm a lot more than I'm expecting. (laughs) So you won't have to become a bridezilla. That's too funny. Oh my God. Um, (laughs) so what is one common myth about our profession that you want to debunk? You know, I think with the fraud profession, um, one myth is one that there's no women um, Two that it's all, you know, uh, ex law enforcement, you know, it's really focused on law enforcement and um, it's very male dominated. And I think those are two myths that almost go hand in hand. So when I thought of fraud initially from the accounting background, I thought of like forensic accounting or law enforcement. And I thought those were like the only two areas that you can go into. So I think, you know, people don't realize how many different things go into fraud risk management. You know, like I didn't realize that I could make an entire profession out of these proactive solutions that I focused on and specialized in like fraud risk assessment or standing up a fraud risk management program from the ground up. So I think also there's a lot of really great women in fraud um, getting to your podcast, right? And I think it's so great. And I hope there's more and more and more as the you know industry progresses so that there's more diversity in the profession as well. But I think there's more than people think there is even right now. Yeah. I mean, I the whole reason that I started Great Women in Fraud is because I was getting women weekly on LinkedIn saying, hey, I want to do what you do. Like, can I do this? And then I'd look at their background and then I'd have phone calls with them and everything like that. And um, I don't have an accounting degree. They're like, they're shocked that I don't have an accounting degree. And, um, and then some of them are shocked that I actually was in law enforcement. But my book is in the first draft. I just got the first working draft back. And one of the things I say is my life is about money. First, it was how to invest money because I was a stockbroker. And then it was how people stole money. And then this sort of third part of great women in fraud is how to understand crime and how to get people to fight crime proactively. Because again, I would much rather go in on the front side than on the back side. So yeah, yeah, it isn't all, I mean, I was lucky I got to be a federal agent and everything like that, but yeah, I could do this work without it because when I was a federal agent, I was arresting typical bad guys. You know, now I'm arresting or defending, I mean, not arresting anymore, regular people. And that's another sort of myth is that, um, you know, only bad people do bad things. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And Absolutely. that's you have one of the, one of the, in the plays is think like a fraudster. I love that. And it's like, it's not think like a bad guy. It's think like a fraudster. 
Yeah. I mean, one thing I feel like I repeat all the time is good people do bad things, you know? And a lot of times we see like the bad guy, right? The fraudster is one of the most trusted people at an organization, or it's, you know, someone that looks like your mom, dad, or your uncle, right? It's regular people. Um, And of course there's organized crime rings and more kind of traditional bad guys. But a lot of the times what I'm seeing is not that it's a lot of regular people who have that pressure to do something bad and have unfortunately succumbed to that and committed a fraud, whatever that may look like. So yeah, absolutely. Think like a fraudster is something that we tell all the time because it's one, hopefully a fun way to think about fraud, right? Like (laughs) everyone put on your fraudster hat sounds more fun than let's get together and make a risk register. Um, So definitely trying to make it more engaging. But it's also very true, right? Like don't think about your process or controls the way you would look at it. Think about how a bad guy who's committed um, or motivated to commit fraud to think about that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I hope more people think like fraudsters. I worked on both sides of it, prosecuting and defending. And I have a colleague who will only do the prosecution side. And I said, you know, you're missing a whole world. And that's why people have hired me on both sides is because I can go in on the prosecution side and look at it one way. And I can go in on the defense side and look at it the way the prosecution, like, And being able to see both sides is more thinking like a fraudster. And they're not your typical bad guys. I mean, I I joke that there are fraudsters I'd rather go have virtual happy hours with than some of the coworkers I've had because you know they're fraudsters. And then you mentioned trust. I'm the fraud hashtag queen. Trust is not an internal control. And honest people steal. It's just like we grow up with this saying of bad people or bad guys. And it's like, that's really not the truth. It's, yeah. And we have the whole fraud triangle. And the other thing that I really liked in the, um, I mean, there were so many things in the anti-fraud playbook. And if you guys haven't downloaded it, I'll provide a link to it. But it is so deep. It, it, but when I say it's so deep, it's not hard. Like it's, it's so actionable, I think. I mean, I just think it's incredibly, you have the integrity um, compared to the fraud triangle. You have the integrity triangle. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, a, I think, a really cool concept. And we hadn't really seen it talked about anywhere. And so we wanted to make sure we shared it as part of the anti-fraud playbook. So the integrity triangle is intended to balance out the fraud triangle. So as you have those like pressure, opportunity, rationalization, you balance it with responsibility, accountability, right? So that there is this counterbalance and you can help employees and stakeholders across your organization understand their role in progress management and their role in protecting the assets of the organization and its customers and its stakeholders, right? So it helps embed this sense of integrity across your culture and responsibility, which is important because a lot of times, right, the see something, say something culture, right? It might be see something, say something only if it's huge, right? But if I notice that one of my colleagues has a really nice car that I don't think makes a lot of sense for what they're paid, right? I might not call the tip line. The integrity triangle is intended to help balance that out and really make it clear what everyone's role is in progress management and how each individual can make a difference in combating fraud. Yeah, that's the thing is like fraud is not just the audit problem or the accounting department's problem. It's everyone's problem because, you know, there's the whole thing, culture eats strategy. Well, fraud eats culture. You know, it's just like it is everyone's thing. And the anti-fraud playbook really shows that everyone needs to be a part of it and understand it. 
because it starts small and it never stops until the person is caught. I mean, someone doesn't just start stealing a check for $750,000, but over years, they might steal $750,000. So it's just like, there's little things and people do pay attention. We're kind of, as my dad would say, Snoopy. I like to say curious, but we're Snoopy. And like, you know, (laughs) if something doesn't make sense, that car, I call it the parking lot audit. If it doesn't make sense, you know, question it. So yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really like the integrity triangle because we do focus a lot on the fraud triangle and opportunity. But one of my things is you can really kind of control for rationalization. If you have a really cruddy tone at the top, it's going to be easier for a good person to rationalize their theft. So yeah, it absolutely is. And then you also have checklists. Now, I didn't say this earlier, but have you read the book Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande? No, I have not. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to send you the book because it's awesome. So Atul is actually a neurosurgeon and he wrote this book about checklists and how it helps people. So I'm going to send you the book. And uh, I think you're going to love it because like checklists, it's like reinventing the wheel. Why are we reinventing the wheel every single time? So I really like that the um, playbook had checklists because when you're in the heat of the moment, how many people forget stuff? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think we like to think that each piece of guidance is very unique, right? And everyone has their own best practices. But really, after working across commercial and public sectors and working across industries and both public, private companies, right, at least I noticed that the best practices were pretty consistent, right? Requirements might be different who the guidance is being issued by might be different, but at their core, they're all very similar. So it's just, everyone was just reinventing the wheel every time and saying the same thing in different ways. And so really the intent of the playbook was to take those practices and operationalize them so that they were actionable. And so it could be as easy as checking off boxes on a checklist, right? So it's taking those sometimes complex and difficult concepts and putting them in plain language and a simple format that even if you weren't a fraud expert, you could hopefully pick up, understand, and put into practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I go back to the fraud playbook because as I'm reading it, I mean, honestly, if I take it to a client, they are going to think I'm genius. I mean, it's just really, really thorough. And again, the generosity um, you put in it about educating, uniting, and supporting with tools. And I think that also is just, it kind of says it all. There are a bunch of tools that um, with the ACFE that you guys did, do you have a favorite tool in there? Uh, you know, I think one of my favorite tools is the maturity model and the ACFE fraud resources page, which has, I think the library of analytics test is really fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've used those for clients who are like, what are fraud analytics? <laughs> what should we be doing? It's like, oh, okay. Well, a good starting place, like let's take a look at some simple, like easy to use tests. And so I refer to that all the time. But the maturity model, I think really helps too. I think, you know, getting to that curiosity that you talked about, right? Organizations are curious too. They want to know how they compare and where they need to improve. And it can be hard to do that unless you know what you're looking for and what you should have in place. So I think the maturity model is really helpful for that. And we've used it at a lot of clients. So, you know, it's tried and true, right? And it leads to some very specific actionable next steps like okay well there's clearly a gap here right circle that 
here we're doing awesome, lots of checks. And so at the end, you have a very clear picture of where you are today. And then you can better understand where you want to go. So I think those are probably my two favorite resources. Okay, that's that's awesome. So we're going to get close to wrapping up here. And this is one of the... Um, there's one thing that I used to do when I did background investigations, when I go interview neighbors and stuff like that. What is something I haven't asked you that you want to tell me about your neighbor? So what is something I haven't asked you that you want to tell the the great woman in fraud audience? You know, I don't know if there's a specific question, but I think one thing that I would want in fraud audience is that um, you're all rock stars. I think it's amazing to see women in fraud. I think it's great. They're listening to this podcast and, I think as we continue to strive to build a fraud fighting community for women um, and allies of women in the field, I think the more we can support each other and um, just continue to fight the good fight against fraud, the better. So, you know, I think Kelly, like meeting you on LinkedIn and Twitter has now developed into, you know, this great relationship. And I think people don't realize how impactful that can be. So the more that you can connect with other people in the field and even outside of the field, the better. So that'd be also like a second thing I would mention <laughs> is the power of connections. And, you know, it sounds simple, but it's really just it's add that person on LinkedIn, uh, follow that person on Twitter, right? Whatever socials you use, and you might learn something from them. And you might also make a new friend, a new colleague, a new support or mentor. So I think that's also really powerful. That is awesome. Like this morning, I just listened to a webinar with um, the guy who wrote Everybody Lies Seth Davidowitz. And it's like, I found him on a podcast and his work is really kind of amazing. So that reaching, and I've reached out and I just tweeted that I listened to a great webinar and they actually did one of my questions. I was so excited. But that reaching out to people that's maybe bigger than our circle, but they add to us. They may really make us think about, I mean, they were talking about Google Trends and Google, Google Ads and Google Topics to really dive down for marketing, which you wouldn't think you know, is all that important? But it is because it's the science of curiosity and finding things. And then, okay, this is kind of like a silly question, but I kind of want it to be part of the podcast going forward. And you can have your choice. What was the last thing you Googled before this interview? Or what is the last class you took? And what did you learn? Or you can answer both. (laughs) Your class? I don't even know if I remember. I... (laughs) My last classes were in my master's program for accounting. So it's probably a bunch of accounting classes. Um, but Google, you know, I think my Google search history is probably pretty odd. Um, it's all fraud. Uh, so how to commit fraud in this industry or what's a breaking fraud article today? Um, so, you know, if you didn't know what I did, you'd probably think I was a mastermind in the making of a big fraud scandal. But otherwise, Google's pretty tame, just lots of fraud. <laughs> just well, and some wedding venues. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. That is very, very important. yeah, very important. Ah. <laughs> any in person, so trying to get a sense of them online. But those are probably yeah, that'd be my most recent <laughs> searches. So where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, my handle on Twitter is Sophia Carlton One. Um, and on LinkedIn, uh, Sophia Carlton CFE. Um, and then I have my pronouns in my title, um, she, her, which I also recommend if you're looking to be more inclusive for those listeners. Uh, pronouns are important and uh, show respect for others in terms of how they want to be spoken to or spoken about. Um, so I'm trying, that's my new push on social media is to make pronouns and <laughs> headers more normal. 
the new normal so that everyone can feel more comfortable. That's amazing. And it's it's really interesting to me because my daughter goes to historically um, women's only college and they all do the pronouns. And initially I was like, hmm, you know, that's a lot of real estate to take up, but I, okay, I'm going to go change mine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that, that would be awesome. It depends on how you identify, right? So like for someone like me, I identify as she and her. So for me, it's not as big of a leap, right? It might not be as surprising to see those pronouns, but I think for our non-binary human beings, it can be really impactful to see that other people are doing that and that they'll feel more comfortable sharing their own pronouns so that they can be spoken to in the way that they feel comfortable. So I think the more we can be visible, the more support we'll give to people who are more minorities in those communities. That, that, that is fantastic. So I will definitely add that to my Twitter. And I want to thank you so much, Sophia, because you're one of, like I said, my first guests. And it's a, a leap of faith to start, a, you know, a new podcast like this. But I've enjoyed following you on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I saw you on the Fraudology series. And again, the Anti-Fraud Playbook, if you guys haven't downloaded it, it's really an amazing resource and um, you'll look smart to your clients. And that's what we want to do is look smart to your clients. So a huge thank you to Sophia and to Grant Thornton for putting all of this together. And uh, we will just see you on the next episode. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Kelly. Wow. I just, I can't thank Sophia enough for her fantastic episode. Um, There were so many parts of this episode, but you know what? At the core of it is the fact that she is such an up-and-comer in the field. She is honest. She is transparent. She knows the importance of community. I just, a huge kudos to go out to her. And if you are looking to get into the field, she is one to follow for sure. And like she says, be sure and reach out to her on the socials. Thank you again for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. This has been another episode of Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton. If you have feedback on today's episode or would like to be a guest or have someone you think we should interview, please tweet us at Great Women in Fraud or email kelly at greatwomeninfraud.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us again next time for more amazing guests, stories, and tips. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, it would be great if you left a rating on iTunes. Or please tell a friend about the show. Your time is valuable and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening.